When was the last time you called yourself a Southern Baptist? Oh, that's a really good question. The last time I called myself officially a Southern Baptist was probably in 2003 or 2004. Beth Allison Barr teaches history at Baylor University, history of religion. And while she doesn't call herself a Southern Baptist now, some of her strongest memories from childhood revolve around the church. But I also have a lot of memories that I now understand better where I begin to see changes in the Southern Baptist church that I grew up in. Like what? Like women um, not being as visible. Women were some of Beth's favorite religious teachers. Her mom taught Bible study. Beth had friends who were missionaries. She's been thinking about all those mentors over the last week as her childhood church held its annual governing meeting. Nearly 2,000 people showed up, and the main topic of conversation was women. I watched the whole thing. It's like you can't help yourself. Uh, yeah, on well, Tuesday. Yeah, I, by Wednesday, I was, I was not, I was ready to not be watching it anymore. <laughs> um, but I watched every bitter moment of Tuesday. Tuesday was the day when the Southern Baptist Convention voted on whether they'd cut ties with two churches that have women pastors at the helm, simply because women pastors are at the helm. One of these churches, Saddleback was founded by evangelical legend Rick Warren. He wrote The Purpose Driven Life. The other, Fern Creek Baptist, is led by Linda Barnes Popham. She's been serving there for over 30 years. And no one bothered her. They let her pastor her flock. And her question was, why now? You know, I've been doing this my whole life. And, you know, a very reasonable question, why now? I've been a Southern Baptist my entire life, giving my life to Jesus Christ as an eight-year-old child at the York Terrace Baptist Church in Sheffield, Alabama. And I, was I was struck when I read about her testimony because one of the points she made was, I'm really conservative. I'm more conservative than some of you men out here who are leading churches. And you're kicking me out. Exactly. Yeah. We disagree with some of you in your faith practice. I mean, look at you extreme Calvinists. I don't agree with you. Look at all of you who closed your churches during COVID. I don't agree with you, but I don't want to kick you out because you are a part of the family. And we at Fern Creek Baptist Church love you very much. We want to part. When it came time to the to vote on whether these churches would remain in the convention? What happened? <laughs> um, well, they both were allowed to give, Rick Warren and um, Linda Popham were allowed to give three minutes uh, appeals for why they should be allowed to remain. Both of them did not finish their appeals within three minutes and the microphones were turned off. And it was really quite stark because suddenly their voices were just shut off in that room. And then the vote was taken. It was an overwhelming majority. It was, I think, 88% voted to sustain the disfellowshipping of Rick Warren's church. And I think 91% 
or around that voted to sustain the um, disfellowshipping of Fern Creek Baptist Church. Could you tell? By the time they took the vote, I don't think there was any question that this is what was going to happen. Today on the show, how keeping women out of the pulpit became gospel for Southern Baptists, and what that says about where evangelicalism is headed from here. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. What is the Southern Baptist Convention? Like, when was it created and why? Yeah, the Southern Baptist Convention was born in 1845, and it was a split between the Northern Baptists and the Southern Baptists, and it split over the issue of slavery, hmm. whether or not slavery was unbiblical. And the North said it was unbiblical. The South said it was biblical. Quite a start to what we're calling a denomination, but it's really like an association of individual churches, Yes. Part of the idea was that they would adhere to basic beliefs, including believers' baptism, that adults made choices about whether or not they followed God, an emphasis on the Bible, and then also this idea of this cooperation of other like-minded churches. From the very beginning with this idea is that we don't tell each other what to do, we just work together. Now the Southern Baptist Convention is really considered to be pretty conservative. And when we talk about how Southern Baptists split off, you can see how this conservative Southern mindset was baked in from the beginning. Yes. But how has it evolved over time? While the, the Southern Baptist world is rooted in a defense of racism, that's really what it was, it did progress beyond that. And as we moved into the later part of the 19th and early 20th century, the Southern Baptist world became very focused on evangelism. So it has this focus early on on training lay ministers to send them out into the world to do God's work. And as this focus continues to grow within the Southern Baptist world, we see a lot of diversity. Many folk begin fighting against the civil rights movement, but we also see folk in the Southern Baptist world fighting for the civil rights movement. As the seminaries grew and as they brought in educated scholars from non-Christian trained schools, we get an influx of a more relaxed attitude towards, towards the Bible and understanding it from a scholarly perspective. And that began to scare a lot of people. When you say a relaxed approach to the Bible? What do you mean? So, for example, one of the early controversies was 1961. A revered professor 
at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary wrote a book on Genesis in which he argued that it's the first 11 chapters of Genesis are not historical, that they are mythological. This reading is a big deal because it goes against something called inerrancy. That's the fundamentalist idea that you have to take the Bible literally. In the 1960s, these looser interpretations of the Bible were quietly becoming more popular in the Southern Baptist Convention. And by the late 1970s, an ultra-conservative wing of the SBC was determined to shut all this down. And so there began to be a lot of fear, a lot of rhetoric picking up about this. And in 1979, these conservative voices in the Southern Baptist world got together and started what we call the conservative resurgence. And the main focus of the conservative resurgence was to stop liberalism drifting into the Baptist world. And they identified that liberalism as a rejection of biblical inerrancy. And included in that was a unbiblical understanding of male-female roles. So what I'm getting from this is that from the beginning, there's been this understanding about how women potentially should behave as part of the Southern Baptist Convention, but there became more urgency in the 70s. And then it seems like in recent years, that urgency has ramped up. Why and how? You're exactly right. Um, the urgency that started in 79 culminated in a 1984 resolution that said women are not to be in leadership positions in the church because of the sin of Eve. And this is going to lead to the 1998 revision that said that women are to not be in pastoral roles. And then ultimately the 2000 Baptist Faith and Message, which was so famous, which said that not only are women not to be in pastoral roles, but women are to submit graciously to their husbands within the home. The whole time this is happening, though, women are pastors in Southern Baptist churches, right? You know, there were a lot of churches that did leave, and it was primarily over the issue of local autonomy of churches and women in ministry. And so there were... There was a split, but at the same time, a lot of churches just kept doing what they'd always done. That is the irony of all of this. Um, I've heard from story after story of women who, you know, heard all this stuff happening and just just carried on because their churches believed in local autonomy. Why would a church choose to stay in the Southern Baptist Convention when the Southern Baptist Convention is telling them their pastors can't pastor. Why not leave? Yeah, that's that's a very good question. Um, I think this concept, this fierce belief in local autonomy of churches, so many Southern Baptist churches, they considered themselves traditionally, they were founded as Southern Baptist churches. Um, they didn't, nothing that the, the Southern Baptist Convention did was binding on them. So it didn't really matter. And it's emotional attachment this historic, you know, I'm Southern Baptist. You know, you think about that old phrase, Baptist born and Baptist bred, and when I die, I'll be Baptist dead. Um, <laughs> you know, I think that's part of it. We've just laid out how the Southern Baptist Convention got to where it is now, where it's trying to shut women out from leadership. But you've argued that all of this idea of inerrancy, this idea that 
what is represented in the Bible about women is the way that women should be treated in the real world now is a willful misreading of what's there. Yeah. Can you, how did you come to that conclusion? Um, It was a slow conclusion. But as I began teaching women's history, and in teaching women's history, I began teaching ancient women's history, including early biblical women's history. And as a medieval scholar, I knew that women served as church leaders, just like men in the ancient church. And the historical evidence is so overwhelming for this. You know, people all the time try to explain away that women's work is not as authoritative as men. And so this is why we see Phoebe, who is the only named deacon of a church in the New Testament, being called a servant. And it's because we're trying to minimize her authority. And we do the same thing with women pastors today. We're like, oh, you know, she's just the director of children's ministry. She's not actually a pastor. And so we try to do all that sort of wording to minimize what women are doing when actually they're doing the same work as men. So there is this disconnect in conservative spaces that we need women to do this work Women doing this work is what's keeping our churches alive. But at the same time, we're going to call it something less than what men are doing and say that it's because we're adhering to biblical principles. And then because of this, we're going to shut women out of all of the most significant leadership spaces in churches. That has tremendous implications um, for when problems arise. Coming up some of those tremendous implications, including sex abuse and silence. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Beth Allison Barr talks a lot about the Southern Baptist Convention and has seen the way women's role in the church is changing, not just because she was born Southern Baptist, but because her husband is a Baptist minister. He used to be the pastor at a church that wasn't technically Southern Baptist, but it was very Baptist and very conservative. And when Beth and her husband suggested giving women positions of church leadership there, their whole world turned upside down. Oh, my husband lost his job. (laughs) Um, My husband and I were in youth ministry. Um, Always feel uh, very strongly called to youth ministry. We'd probably still be in it if he hadn't been fired. So as we are working with teenagers at the same time, I'm also a professor, and my husband also is very intelligent, and we've been reading a lot of stuff. And both of us began to realize that what 
the restrictions put on women within um, our church space were not actually biblical, that it was a misapplication of Scripture and taking things out of historical context. So what did you want to change? Well, what we wanted to change was so small. My husband and I aren't really revolutionaries. All we wanted to do was to get permission for a woman to co-teach a Sunday school class with a man. And it wasn't me. I wasn't asking for myself. Um, We just wanted to get a woman to co-teach a Sunday school class with a man. That was our ask. And that was turned down with a hard no because women are not— supposed to teach adult men, and the church at the time, like many Southern Baptist churches, said that adulthood begins at the age of 13 for men. And so it would be inappropriate for a woman to be in a classroom teaching, having authority over 13-year-old boys. Whoa. Yes. Just let that think in. I mean, all of us who have had 13-year-old boys. <laughs> I have a 13-year-old daughter, too, right now. I mean, it's just amazing thinking that that's the beginning of adulthood. But When we were turned down with that hard no, we pressed the issue, and we sent back, and we said, we want to talk with y'all about this. We are uncomfortable with this. Um, We're uncomfortable with some of the decisions the pastor has been making. And within three weeks of us sending that email, my husband lost his job. Beth's husband is now a pastor at a new church, one that was founded in the 1870s, and is still technically listed on the Southern Baptist Registry. So while their old, more conservative church wasn't technically SBC, their new one actually is, which is why they got a heads up that women pastors were about to be under fire at this year's Southern Baptist Convention. My husband got an email from a pastor named Mike Law who had become increasingly concerned after the ordination of three women at Saddleback. Mike Law had become increasingly concerned about women pastoring local churches in his Southern Baptist world. So he sent out an email to Southern Baptist pastors, you know, pastors at Southern Baptist churches saying, hey, do y'all realize that all these women in an unbiblical way have moved in to leadership in the Southern Baptist world? I think we need to speak out against this at the next Southern Baptist convention. So going into this convention, you saw how this energy was building, driven by one person in particular. Yes, but... Uh, you know, the it got so many signatures so fast. And the hit list, as I said, was really disturbing um, because it put images of these women. And some of these churches were kind of like ours. They're like, hey, we haven't considered ourselves Southern Baptist for years. I don't even know why you're targeting us. <laughs> Please take me off your mailing list. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Like, uh, we don't want to be a part of this. So don't bother targeting us. But at the same time, their faces have been put out there as being dangerous. You've alluded to this, but I want to get into it very specifically here. At the same time that the SBC was considering expelling these churches led by women, the delegates were also considering a constitutional amendment that would really underline only men have any kind of pastoral or elder role because of scripture. How does that push things further? Because as we've said, the church already kind of had this understanding. What does a constitutional amendment do? Why is that a big change? 
1845 is when we have the first Southern Baptist Constitution. And the idea is, is that these are sort of the parameters that we're going to function in, in friendly cooperation. And that's the language that's used in that amendment that, you know, we don't all have to agree. There's sort of diversity in unity is sort of this idea that we can disagree on things, but we're going to be in friendly cooperation. And what has been done over time is that we have seen that friendly cooperation be defined, especially in terms of inerrancy, like we're going to believe the Bible. Um, also concerned about sexuality, like there's a phrase in there that says churches that support LBGTQ inclusion, they just use the word homosexual because it was written a while ago, are not in friendly cooperation. And now we have this amendment that says churches that have female pastors, not just senior pastors, but churches that have female pastors will also not be considered in friendly cooperation with the Southern Baptist Church. So we have seen over time this friendly cooperation be qualified narrower and narrower. My understanding is that this means that, you know, while there were just kind of disagreements among leadership with these churches that were expelled, putting this in the constitution of the SBC means that there are more than a thousand churches that could potentially now be expelled? Yes, that's exactly right. You know, and it's crazy for a denomination that has already suffered its largest membership loss. It's now the size it was in 1978, which is the year before the conservative resurgence. So it's so ironic because the conservative resurgence, the idea was we're going to, this is a way we're going to preserve the faith and make the Southern Baptist world stronger. And instead, what has happened is the exact opposite. The Southern Baptist Church has gotten weaker and gotten, especially in the past few years, significantly smaller. What do you think that'll do to the character of the church? I mean, you've spoken about how meaningful it was to you to grow up with all these women in these positions of authority, helping you understand God. Yeah. It's decentering women. And not that I think women should be at the center, but I think women and men together should be at the center. And what the Southern Baptist world has done is centered men so much that they have pushed women out to the margins of the faith. They have pushed the stories of women in the Bible out to the margins of the faith. They have pushed the work of women out to the margins of the faith, which is not only dangerous, but somewhat heretical because it also seems to suggest that the God we serve is male too. You say it's dangerous to have this focus on men. And I think it's important that we focus in on that. Because at the same time this debate was going on about women in leadership roles in the church, the Southern Baptist Convention was dealing with a real serious abuse scandal. It had, it had really exploded last year. And it's so interesting that this year, certainly there was discussion of the abuse scandal, but really the thing we're all talking about from, from the meeting is women in the churches, which... <laughs> kind of has a way of of shunting the abuse allegations out the door, but they're so important. Yes. No, I mean, that's exactly right. I think, you know, last year was really the only time that we saw the convention fully focused on the sex crisis. And I think that was because the noise was so loud, the public noise. They were worried about investigations from outside that they had to deal with it. 
that they had to jump in and deal. But then this year, we see this distraction with women pastors. It's like sort of, you know, I don't know how you think the solution to a sex abuse crisis is to limit women's power even more within churches, but that's exactly what they have done. It gives the clear message that what is important to Southern Baptist churches is not the well-being of women and men. Men were victims of the sex abuse scandal, too. What is not important is the well-being of these victims— What is important is concentrating the power of church leadership in the hands of authoritarian male pastors. You've said you and your husband left the Southern Baptists because you could see the direction that the convention was moving in. Do you think Southern Baptists have reached their destination this year? Oh, that's a really good question. So I think what it has done is it has brought up other areas of concern. As they have begun to narrow these boundaries around women further and further, it has made them realize there are other things that need to be narrowed as well, like gender, like sexuality issues. One of the messengers said that not only do we kick out female pastors, but we actually need to go through and define clearly all of the offices of authority and see how churches are putting women in positions that, even if they're not pastoral, carry pastoral authority. And one of the examples he gave is women as chairs of committees. Once you start narrowing in this type of way, it creates an atmosphere of suspicion. So, yeah, I think this was their destination, but I think now that they've gotten here, they're going to keep going unless something stops them. The amendment that was approved, it has to be approved two years in a row for it to become a part of the Constitution. This is the amendment that says that women can't be in these places of authority. So it being passed in 2023, it also has to be passed in 2024. Right now, I don't think that's going to be a problem. But given the reaction of some of these pastors in the room who talked about how heavy it was when they realized what they had done, I'm wondering if maybe there's still hope. I guess we'll, we'll just have to see. Beth Allison Barr, I'm really grateful for your time and your research. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Beth Allison Barr is a history professor at Baylor University. She's also the author of The Making of Biblical Womanhood. And that's our show. What Next is produced by Paige Osborne, Elena Schwartz, Rob Gunther, Madeline Ducharme, and Anna Phillips. We are led by Alicia Montgomery with a little help from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate. And I'm Mary Harris. You can go track me down on Twitter. I'm at Mary's desk. I'll catch you back here tomorrow. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. 
So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.